But the point is always to just be that back, to be that support, to be that shining beacon of hope, light, inspiration for people who are currently struggling and just are not finding the answer as like 90% of people are not finding the answer in the traditional ways. Because yeah, I got sober through traditional means because nobody else gave me any other chance. Welcome to the Ignited Recovery Podcast, a new way forward for anyone looking for answers but feeling left out. If you've been searching for empowerment, triumph, and purpose, you've found them right here. You won't hear the same solutions and you're not going to have any excuses to fall back on because Ignited Recovery allows heroes to rise and become their best selves. I'm Dr. Adi Jaffe and I can't wait to be your guide on this journey. Are you ready to become an Ignited Hero? You know, when I had meth, and this is so funny to say, like I smoked a lot. I was smoking like two packs a day too when I was um, smoking meth. But smoking cigarettes became one of my ways to smoke less meth. Mm. So like I would be sitting in my studio. I posted that picture on Instagram if anybody wants to see it. But it's like a picture of me in the studio and I'm there with my dad and you see the ashtray in the back and it's like one of those ones that you can push on and it will make the whatever ashes are there go down into the the inside of the ashtray so you can just have like the one or two that you just smoked recently. It's for people who smoke a ton. Wow, yeah. um, and it was always full and it's full in that picture and there's a bunch of stuff around it. But my rationale, which made a lot of sense for me at the time was when I smoke cigarettes, I'm not smoking meth because I was just smoking meth all the time. I was selling it. So I had... I would smoke $500 of meth a day or something like that. And I just had a pipe. It was always full and I would just keep smoking it. And <laughs> I knew that wasn't good. Um, I'm only laughing because I know him as who he is now. Right. And I, I never knew him then. And I always just say like his old life, like his, his, his old life. Like I didn't know you then. Yeah. And just to imagine you that way, like it's just, it's mind boggling. What did you think when you saw that picture? I mean, I don't have as much emotional connection to it because I wasn't there, but like you look like a crackhead. Yeah. You look like Eminem on a really bad day. When he was a crackhead. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I, it's not you. It's just a, it's someone else. Cause I don't see the same thing. I just see me back then. Yeah. I so I just look like a little skinnier to myself. That's all I see. You look like absolute shit. And, um, and so I always wonder what other people see in it, but somebody asked me, do you have this is the thing. People always like, they want proof that I was really as fucked up as I was because now I seem so normal. Yeah. At least the people who don't know me well. Haha. Ha. Um, but I seem so normal that they're like, it couldn't have been that bad. And I'm like, no, it was pretty fucking bad. Like pretty, yeah. pretty ridiculously bad. Yeah. There's actually somebody wrote me an email the other day. They wanted to join the course and they were like, I really want to check your criminal record just to make sure it was really that far back. So I get it from both sides, which is always really funny. I get people who are like, you went to jail. I don't trust you. And then people are like, I don't know if you went to jail long enough. Yeah, I don't yeah, trust yeah. you. It, yeah. it goes both ways. You can't win. But I was smoking all the time, all day. So I was also smoking two packs a day, partially to smoke less meth. And, you know, I started out in college. I was still in college when I started with meth. And you started to, to smoke meth, just to be clear. Like he was a straight A student, super fucking smart. He's really cerebral. He's a Virgo. He's just like on it. His head is just screwed on right in many ways. And he was a great student. However, he didn't really want to go to class. So he didn't go to class a lot. But then to stay up for finals and to study for finals, he was like, oh, like who gave you that first? I was a good student. 
honestly, until until halfway through having moved to the States in high school, mm-hmm. when being a good student was no longer enough. Like when I was in Israel, if you got good grades on tests, nobody gave a fuck. Uh, homework didn't matter. All that was prep for the test. And so because I could ace the test, nobody cared. Right. That's what I meant. You're, you're very um, book smart. But I moved to the States and that, that started, there was a lot of conflict actually around school for me because I'm not good at completing tasks. I mean, I joke about this, but I hired my first assistant when I was a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you couldn't complete things. I, my car got impounded when I was selling drugs. It was a Nissan Altima. I think the payments were like 70 or $80 a month is like 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, I had $10,000 in my pocket. Yeah. Like I could have paid off the car. Yeah. I just forgot to make payments for months. Yeah. And so eventually they just came to the studio and took it. And I remember like realizing I'm really bad at this shit. I've always been bad at it. I, lo- I lose stuff all the time. I used to lose a lot more things. Um, and so I realized I have the money. I have the drugs. Let me take some of the people who buy drugs from me and make them my assistant. And so, you know, people on meth really, really like organizing shit. And so they organized my life. And um, But the reason I'm saying all of this is when I moved to the States, the standards of what it meant to be good at school changed and I became a bad student. I graduated in the bottom 50th percentile of my class. Mm. Just to be clear, there was like 300 people in my class. There were 150 people in my class that did better. Actually, there was more like 180 people in my class who did better than I did. I was the smart druggie in that group, but I I didn't get away with anything. So yeah. I just, um, and again, it's funny, right? I was getting Bs. Right. Low B's and stuff. But it you wasn't probably like weren't failing. even trying. I mean, I You're probably getting anything. low B's doing nothing. That's uh-huh. what I'm saying. Yeah. You so, are very smart and your brain allows you to half-ass it, yet still get a B minus. Here's the problem is I, and you know this about me, I'm such a perfectionist. Right. That when it wasn't perfect anymore, it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so the difference between getting a B and a C was not that big for me. Yeah. A C and a D. Not that big a difference. So yeah. what happened is I kept giving up more and more and more. Long story short, I'm in college. I was using all the time. I went through a serious depression. Like right, we were talking about the deep core issues. I have social anxiety, always have. You know this. Like when I smoke weed, it comes out. Even now, I feel really awkward. And I don't really know how to talk to people. Um, and went to college. My girlfriend at the time, what's up, Allison? Um, Sup, bro- girl? Broke up with me for another guy, a senior. It was like this class, like you've seen this shit in the movie so many times. We both went to college. We went to different colleges an hour apart from each other. She found the senior guy. Um, pseudo cheated on me. Not, like not really cheated on me, but like went out on dates with him uh, while we were dating. Broke up with me and I lost my shit. Social anxiety, feel awkward around women in general. I Rejection. Had this thing, you know, I had this thing like from junior high about being rejected by this girl I asked out. It's insane how long these things stay in your head. And so I went into this deep, deep, deep hole. And when I say deep hole, I just want to be clear. Like if there's anybody here who's gone through a serious depression, I laid in my room to like noon to 3 p.m. depending on the day. I would start smoking weed and drinking the moment I would get up. I would drink and smoke till I was in oblivion and then pass out around 3 or 4 and then do the same thing again. Um, my poor fucking roommates in college, I don't even, I feel bad for them now. And it's like write them 25 years later. I don't remember their, who they are even, but, um, <laughs> please reach out if you I are did, listening to this. I want to describe like, I, I, you know what? We're going deep, right? So I'll describe going deep. Um, we had in the 
place in Buffalo where I went to school first, there was this common area for the room and then two little suites where you kind of went to your own little bedroom. So there were four people total. They shared this common space. I was such an asshole and so disconnected from how my behavior was affecting people around me. I, uh, I was a huge Nine Inch Nails fan at the time. I took, do you guys know that if you paint with tie dye on walls and it becomes UV sensitive? So like you put black light on and it glows. I painted a massive Nine Inch Nails on the wall, like the logo, like the size of a human, each letter. I bought strobe lights. I had my stereo You're system. such a dick. <laughs> and I would blast, like blast Nine Inch Nails in the common area. Just, Poor thing. Just for the noise to drown out the self-hatred I had in my head. For hours a day. Mm. Like, I don't even... I mean, I have friends still from that time. You know what? I'm going to ask them, like, what the fuck did people think of me back then? Yeah. I was insane. Um, nothing normal mattered. But you I didn't felt care. Things. You felt things deeply. Like, I felt like you, back then, you really knew how, like, you wrote a lot of music. You journaled bad, yeah. poetry. But I'm just saying you, like, really felt that range of your emotions. I drowned in it. Though. Yeah. I was drowning yeah. in it. And yeah. I couldn't handle it. So, I would just... I needed outside noise to just take it out of my head. And I did. And I did a lot of it. And then I found more and more drugs. So I was already drinking. I was already smoking weed. But I found more and more drugs to make the noise quieter and quieter. And so somehow I got into UCLA, like in the middle of that insanity. And the reason is literally, this is, thank God, like everything happens perfectly for the time that it's in, right? They asked for transcripts. My first year in college, I had like a 3.8 GPA. Because I hadn't gotten this, my girlfriend had broken up with me yet. Nothing had gone terribly bad. That's all the transcripts UCLA got. By the second year that I was there, I had like a 2.8, mm-hmm. a 3.0. UCLA would have never accepted me if they had to get those final those transcripts. Final grades, and yeah. actually, it got even more insane. What happened was I got accepted into UCLA. Then they did get those transcripts and they needed me to make up classes because I didn't do well enough. So in this drug haze, I was selling weed. I was doing acid like just in the, randomly in the middle of days, just like walking around doing acid. Wow. I took these extra classes. I was on probation for stealing. and bu- Like it was, my life was just pure insanity day in and day out. Mm-hmm. And um, I moved to UCLA. I didn't know a lot of drug users around UCLA. So things actually calmed down for a little bit. And then I got back into ecstasy pretty heavily um, with my other friend who I'm not going to name here because mm-hmm. I don't want to ruin her career. Um we got really, really heavily in ecstasy and I was doing a lot of it and it made me poor. So I started selling drugs and I started selling ecstasy and got a lot of friends like pretty quickly. You know, I had five or six, seven close friends in college, started selling drugs, had a lot of friends. Yeah. Like 40, 50, 60 people, people walking up to me on campus. Hey, how you doing? Let's hang out. What are you doing tonight? Do you have some pills? Start selling ecstasy. And then through that, I got exposed to a lot of other things. Um, had some money for the first time. And then people started asking me for meth. I'd never heard of it before. Didn't even know what it was. Got them some. And then I went through another breakup with that same girl, the girl that I'd gotten really into ecstasy with. Second serious breakup. Here's the signal again. I go through a deep depression. But this depression started right during finals period at school. And so um, I had a motorcycle. I was living downtown in this uh, artist loft with my partner at the time when we were making music. And it was raining every day. I was actually homeless for two days because I couldn't sleep at her house, which is where I was sleeping before. And I slept on like a friend's um, awning, like under their awning for their uh, for their house. <laughs> it was insane. And I was, I, <laughs> and I knew I had two days before my first final 
I hadn't studied in like a quarter and a half. You just and didn't go to school and didn't. I was a kid. I don't know if anybody knows these kids. We show up, we get the syllabus on the first day. Now you don't even need it's to do that. It's fascinating. And then you never show up again. Yeah. I was one of those kids. And Opposite. I knew, I'm like, I'm screwed if this finals period starts because I've been crying and like drowning my sorrows for days. What do I do? And somebody said, hey, I've got this stuff. If you take this stuff, you'll be able to stay up and study. I was like, cool, let's try it. So it was meth. It was the shittiest meth I've ever done in my life too. So not to be snobby about it or whatever, but I would, I never sold crank, which is what this stuff was. Uh, it was crappy meth, but I did it with another girl at that same house and we stayed up for three days straight and studied. And when I say three days straight, some people listen to that and they go, oh, you studied a lot for three days? And then you went to let sleep. Me, let me you- reiterate what I said before. I studied for three days straight for 72 hours. Oh my God. We sat around their dining room table and she and I would study and then we'd take smoke breaks and then we'd come back and we'd study and we'd take smoke breaks and we'd study like three whole days. And in the middle of that, on the third day, I went and I took my first final and I did okay because I'd studied for three days for it. And then I had three more finals during that um, finals period. So I, I was high for that entire thing, but I made it through. And back to the point that I make for everybody, which is you used to serve a purpose. What was that purpose? Get back to the purpose and fix that. From that point forward, finals periods meant meth. Mm. Because I could fuck around like I had been the entire time and show up a day or two before finals. I taught myself accounting in like 30 hours. I'd never been in that class. I sat with the book for 30 hours. I got like a B plus on the, on the final. And it felt normal. Like it worked. This is what I was saying before. Nobody gives a fuck while the things you're, you're doing are working. Right. You're getting good they grades. They care when things are falling apart. Right. I was getting a B plus. Nobody cared that I wasn't going to class. Right. It was working. Yeah. The thing is, then my brain went, wait, if this works for finals, why aren't you doing it for midterms? And I started doing it for midterms. Still not parting with meth at all. Still not using it all the time. Um, so I started doing it for midterms and then for every big test. And that's when the stuff starts becoming a problem because now I'm doing it pretty much every week. There's a reason to use it. And now tolerance is building up and now the same amount is not working. And now I need more. And within, I would say within a few months, maybe six months, maybe nine months of using meth, I was using it pretty much daily, a little bit, but daily. And within a year, I was for sure using daily. Now I was selling a lot of it. I was selling it to other. So now not only people who do ecstasy, now people who are buying meth uh, sell for me. Now I'm getting some other people to sell with me because now I've got like four or 500 customers all over LA. I'm driving 250, 300 miles in LA every day selling my stuff. I'm still a student, by the way. Magically, somehow, I'm still supposed to be graduating. Um, but it was, I mean, the ground was coming out from under me, like, Slowly but surely, everything that was still okay and functional in my life was just falling apart. And then um, you graduate somehow. I barely graduate. My parents came for graduation. I didn't walk. Not only that, I didn't wake up to go pick them up at the hotel like I was supposed to. I got woken up graduation day to my parents shaking me in bed. I've got lines of meth next to my bed. Oh, my God. I'm out. Um, we run. Nobody talked about it, by the way. You've like, never talked about family. This? We've never. I mean, we talked about it now in my thing with okay. my sister. But your mom, who was we ne- there. We never talked about it. Was your sister there for graduation? Oh, yeah. yeah. They were in my room, like face, in, in my face. Your like, sister is there and up. she sees the lines of math. Nobody talked about it. Okay. Nobody mentioned the drugs. Like, this is what where people say, like, the denial. I, I wasn't in denial about my problem. Everybody else around me didn't want to watch it. We went to the 
graduation. But here's the thing. I didn't graduate that day because I hadn't completed all the tasks. It took another year and a half for me to graduate from UCLA. My parents didn't know. I lied to them about it the whole time. Um, and I just dug myself in. Like By the time we got to that place where I was saying in that picture, where I'm smoking all the time and I'm smoking meth. My entire life was about getting high and selling drugs. Um, I knew hundreds of people, but I didn't know anybody that didn't get fucked up the way I did. Like not a single human. Everybody else had left me. All the normal people had left me. Um, and my life was about using, 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 selling to other people who would use, using with them. Then they would leave. Then I would use. Then at some point I would pass out and then I'd come back to. And I would, and you were in it. You were in it hard. You were in it for years. You yeah. were, you didn't give a shit about anyone else but yourself. Um, you treated people disrespectfully. You, I mean, even before you started using meth, when you were just in college, like you didn't care. You had no self-awareness. You were bulldozing over other people's needs. Um, it was all about you. And then you used more and more and harder drugs. Yeah. And then you were super addicted. You did what you want when, did you, when you wanted to. You also had this fake sense of social approval. Yeah. Um, women wanted to be with you because you were the drug dealer and you had what they wanted. I had money and I had drugs. Yeah. And then same with some other friends. Like yeah. they wanted to hang out with you because that. So you had this like veil of. I call it, I was the king of shit. Yeah. It was like, I ruled my own kingdom. There were like a few hundred people in it. In that place, when I would walk into a room, everybody would go, hey, Adi's here. Like everybody would yeah. be so happy. Yeah. And by the way, I would be three hours late. Yeah. And they would be ecstatic it's that like I was a night there. It's like um, a nightmare. It's just the world that I ruled was right. a, a useless yeah. world that nobody really wanted to be a part of. And I, I realized that every once in a while. And when it really would dawn on me, I would try to quit. Yeah. I, oh, the, even then you realize like, well, you, the way it would look is like, like look, you'd be sober for a minute or no, I would find myself alone every once in a while. Yeah. And I asked somebody else about this a little bit ago. I think maybe at one of our interviews and when I would find myself alone, the thought would be like, what the fuck is happening? I graduated UCLA, everybody I hung out around, and this is not a put down to anybody who didn't graduate college, but sometimes people go like, oh, you went to college? It's like, how did I get here? Like how, how did this, yeah. how, how am I surrounded by people who are surprised that I went to college? Yeah. I don't, you don't need to go to college if you don't want to, but like why are people surprised right. that that's where I am? Yeah. And I would ask these self-questioning things and I, I have this really like vivid picture in my head of where I was in this blacked out studio on this couch that I would pass out on sometimes asking myself that question. And every once in a while, like I said, about five to seven to nine times overall in my using career, I would say I need to be done. And normally that would look like it was only for the meth and I would try to stop. The first couple of times I tried to just stop using myself. Then I realized I had to stop selling it because I couldn't sell it and not use it. Um, and the most I ever made it to is two weeks, I think. Um, and I actually think that the time that I made it to two weeks was the time that I got in the accident. Mm. Um, Why was it on you? No, no, I, I was clean. I had, I had coke on Wait, me. you had coke on you. I'm just saying still, you, oh, still, you still were selling. Again, okay. again, again. I knew I was addicted to meth. I needed to quit meth. And stop selling, selling meth. Selling drug okay. was it. not even on my got radar. It, got it, got it. I was going to continue being a drug dealer. I just needed to stop smoking meth so much. So then you got in the motorcycle accident and you had Coke on you in the inner lining of your leather yeah, jacket. Yeah, I'd, I'd hidden the, I think it was about a half a pound or a quarter pound of Coke that was left from selling it around town. Um, and I hid it in the lining of my jacket because you're always prepared when you sell drugs. And uh, I got in this accident and the cops kept trying to get my jacket. And I was like, 
holding on to it for dear life. And I gave them my license. I gave them everything I could so they wouldn't take my jacket. But it was Beverly Hills. And I have a feeling they just wanted to search me. And they probably knew what you were up to. No, they'd arrested me like two or three times oh, already. Yeah. So yeah. they my name was on their radar. Yeah. And um, and they arrested me. This is the moment they found it. They found it in like. And that was the beginning of the end, kind of. Like it was kind of like, then they were on to you. you it was the You broke your leg. I broke my leg. I couldn't walk. They arrested me in the hospital. Like I, I woke up with that thing, like where you're chained to the bed and there's a cop next to you. They put a. You say that thing like anyone has ever experienced. No, that, but you've seen it. You've seen it in movies. Okay. Like you, so the thing you've seen in movies, not yeah, so something I, that you've ever to, done. No, no, no. Of course yeah. not. It's like it's one like, person you know, listening maybe you, who this yeah. has happened to. Um, yeah, no, my arm was like shackled to the bed and then they thought they were going to arrest me that day, but they realized I couldn't walk. I was not a flight risk. I literally couldn't get out of bed yeah. and wouldn't be able to without severe pain for months. So they let me go. But what they did is they found a bunch of drugs on me. So they said, let's put pressure on him and find out where he got it. Because you don't use a half a pound of Coke. They knew I was a, a dealer. Yeah. So the question was more who. Where, they where wanna, did you get They want to go from? up the chain. Yeah. And so they kept trying to squeeze me. Literally, this happened. And um, our friend, who again, I'm not going to mention her name, was with me walking around Beverly Hills around one of my court dates. Cops would stop sometimes. Only two, two of the cops, the detectives that were like on my case, they would stop when they would see me in Beverly Hills and talk to me. Like yeah. try to get me. So are you ready? Are you ready to talk to us? And they would try to squeeze me and tell me. And I, I wasn't going to snitch. I was never going to tell yeah. them who I was buying it from. And they got really mad about it. And they kept being mad about it. And I thought I was being smart by not telling them and, and just hiding. Then they got really pissed. And so one Saturday, you just came to my house at 8 o'clock in the morning. And the SWAT team arrest and guns out. 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm passed out on GHB in my bed. I don't even know what's happening. I come to, it's like these dark shadows just coming into the room, just guns out, you know, dressed in all black, like you see it in the movies all the time. Um, and it's, I mean, like literally if there was a camera at the time, this is the ideal movie to make about this stuff. I had, um, you guys remember those full wall size posters that we would get in college? You know, the mm-hmm. ones that are like, like six foot tall posters. I had one right behind my bed of John Lennon on that white piano playing Imagine. So that was right behind my bed. And, but there was also a gun and a meth pipe and all these other things right next to it. They came to arrest me. Thank God I didn't reach for the gun because they would have shot me. But they asked, do you have any weapons here? So I had had the gun. They went and got the gun. And then after that, they picked me up because I can't walk. And they put me in the living room. So four cops, four or three cops, pick me up and walk and like walk me over to the living room to sit me down. I feel so nauseous right now, by the way. Like I've heard this story so many times and I am nauseated. Like I could throw up right now. Just to imagine you going through this. It's like so painful. And they wanted, they wanted to search the room. So they need me out of it. And so, um, they put me on this, uh, on the couch, kind of like a couch like we're sitting on right now. But behind that one was another six foot poster. Oh yeah. A Scarface poster. Right. And I remember just the irony, like I thought about this months after this happened, I'm sitting leg broken in the picture. He's got his arm broken. He's just been shot up. He's a Coke dealer. I've been selling drugs and there's cops just going through my house and I'm sitting there like, damn, fuck careful what you wish for i knew well it's funny actually that you say that because scarface is one of those movies every drug dealer loves idolizes all punks love it but if you think about it that motherfucker gets shot up like 400 times staying alone in his room watching closed circuit tv of people breaking into his house so it's it's a nightmare he's not living through a good life yeah so that was that was not the second break we romanticize as humans isn't it 
Like 100%. you get into something, you know, it doesn't feel right. You know, it's not good for you, but then you get like lost in it. It's like a nightmare that you get lost in. He I, was living a nightmare. You were living a nightmare. I was living a complete nightmare. Yeah. What's up everybody. So glad that you've tuned in here today. You know, we bring you these recovery episodes to help anyone who's struggling with addiction or habits that don't serve them break free of the cycle using the latest research and the most effective strategies that I've found over my years of doing this and thousands of people I've helped. Obviously, we offer this free resource to you because I know that getting help is hard and I want to make it as easy as possible. So even if you never join our online hero program or come to our retreats or come and work with me individually, I want you to at least have access to the same powerful tools that have changed thousands of lives. If you like this and think it's useful, please give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or just wherever you're listening to this right now. It really helps get the word out about this free resource, which is important since my goal is to help over a million people. So thanks a lot for being part of the Ignited community. Now let's get you back to the help. And now this is just because you said this is the beginning of the end when I got in the accident. This is technically like the second or third stop sign I got because I'd been arrested in Beverly Hills and spent like three or four days in, in uh, their jail before. Then there was that arrest in the hospital. I broke my leg. Other dealers that were selling from me, like they would come buy stuff from me and sell, they were scared of coming to my house because I'd been arrested. I had a broken leg. I couldn't leave. I was in a wheelchair. I couldn't leave my house. They would have to come to my house. We were afraid that we were being watched. Uh, you which, probably were. Which we probably were given what happened with the SWAT team and everything after. Um, and... I was physically, like there was a physical stop sign. You mm -hmm. can't do this anymore. But I had to go farther. So a SWAT team comes and they get me. Um, and then I go to jail. And this time it was serious. It was $750,000 bail. Uh, they got me for 13 felony counts because every drug is a different felony. And then I had three manufacturing counts because I had materials to make meth, which I wasn't actually making. But a friend of mine who had been arrested like three weeks earlier left his meth supplies with me so that he would get busted with it because he thought he was close. And so they found that at my house and they found me trying to figure out how to make ecstasy, which we had made a few years earlier. So I got like 13 felony counts. The weapons start all of that. $750,000 bail. And I'm in jail where um, and USC has a county medical wing, which is attached to kind of like where people who get arrested and have serious injuries need to go. They wouldn't let me bring my crutches because crutches in jail are a weapon. So I'm kind of jumping up on one leg, which is what I was doing anyway. But I'm in this place and I can't explain the level of like dysfunction, filth, um, disgusting, animal-like way people live in that place. <laughs> the toilets both had broken. So there's just toilet water all over the floor. There's... Between the two, I think there was two adjoining rooms that were in it. There were like 12 of us. So like three bunk beds in each one. Everybody is fucked up. Like the only reason you're in that place is you can't walk. You broke an arm. You're, you're broken. Like you're so broken. They can't put you in a regular jail. Oh my God. And that's where I go. And, um, and I'm laying in this bed and I'm just thinking to myself like, what the fuck is happening? And now I'm starting to withdraw from the meth because Jesus. now it's been, I, I spent about 12 hours in LA in the Beverly Hills jail before they took me to LA County. And we were trying to do everything to not go to LA County. Cause we knew that was the beginning of the end. And um, now I'm in this room, toilet water is broken. This guy who like had jumped out of a window, three stories up because he was trying to escape the cops, broke both his legs. He's like next to me. It is the epitome. Like if you watch orange is a new black or any of those kinds of shows, this is when shit gets really, really bad. That's that moment that I'm in. And 
I'm not getting out because it's three quarters of a million dollar bail. And I call my dad. I hadn't talked to them in forever, but my lawyer contacted them when I was in the Beverly Hills jail. And so I call my dad collect from that phone. And he's like, hey, we're trying to get together the money to get you out. And I'm like, don't. Don't touch it. Yeah, You're not spending. It would have been $75,000 they would have had to spend that they would never get back to get me out. I go, I don't, I don't need your money. Don't touch anything. Let me be here. I'm going in front of a judge in a few days. I'll, I'll sort this out. And uh, I spent five or six days in that room. It was a, it was a weekend because they got me out in a weekend. I think it was even like a long weekend. So within 24 hours, I was so tired I couldn't function because that's what happens when you withdraw from meth. You get into depression and you just your body now needs to catch up to all the sleep that it lost. Mm. And so for I think it was five days, maybe it was four, maybe it was six, but for a while, all I would do is sleep in that bunk. And I remember like the I slept in the bunk right next to the bar. So when people would walk by, I wouldn't even hear them. Until I would wake up, somebody would shake me and wake me up and say, hey, food's here. And I would eat because my body was starting. I was 125 pounds, 124 pounds. Um, I would eat and then I would pass right back out. And I did that for essentially five days. Sleep, eat, sleep, eat, sleep, eat. And by the end of that, my body could actually stay up for a few hours at a time without the meth. You were recovering. And I was just withdrawing, which yeah. is honestly oh a fucking blessing. Yeah. Because... I don't know in what other surrounding I would have zero choice to stop because here's the thing, right? Everybody talks about stopping. I tried to stop nine, 10 times. I got put in a situation where I had to. Now I got out and now I was quote unquote clean, got out um, and we had to figure out what to do. And, you know, you said again, multiple stop signs, right? So my lawyer said, you got to go to rehab. I was like, why rehab? What is that? I don't want to go to rehab. And he goes, well. Also, you were clean. Yeah. Was, Isn't it funny, the system? Yeah, I was clean. What happened was I. Um, it was like a deal that they had to make, right? With the courts. It wasn't even a deal yet. Like nothing had happened. I had just yeah. been arrested. I was clean for five days because I was in jail. Yeah, but yeah. nobody trusted me to no, fucking. Stay clean. Nobody trusted me farther than they could like pee on me. It wasn't even throw a rock. Like yeah. throwing a rock was too far within a couple of feet. Like as long as I was within a couple of feet of you, you knew what I was doing. Other than that, you had no idea. Yeah. And so. Sketchy, yeah, yeah. Totally. And so he was like, no, no, you got to go to rehab because we got to show them that you're good. Otherwise, you're going to go to prison for like 20, 18 years. Like yeah. that's probably what you're looking at. And I was like, oh, fuck. Let's go to rehab. But here's the thing. And here's why I say it. quitting is not the freaking deal. It has nothing to do with quitting. I threw a party and it's, it wasn't a party. It was me, my dealer, the guy who I was buying from at the time, this one girl that I was hooking up with and like one other person. And we got together in that apartment, the same apartment I just got arrested in, still with the neon pink sign on the door of, you know, um, that the SWAT team had been there and their dangerous substances had been discovered. So that's on the outside of the door. And inside, we're just smoking meth all night, doing drugs all night. We actually took a picture. One of those, that girl was a photographer. We took a picture with the signs on me. Like we had no no sense of what was normal in the world. I took the signs off the door, put them on me. She took a picture of me with a meth pipe, like wow, yeah. using while having that sign around. I went right back to doing what I knew how to do. It's just all I knew. And so we threw this party and then this, this one, that girl was, uh, she drove me to rehab the next day. And I knew nothing about addiction until I walked in those doors. But I got 
taught real quick, right? You go to rehab and they search through your stuff for obvious reasons. And they put you in these groups and you get taught the language really, really quickly. And I said, I knew I was addicted to meth. But the concept of identifying myself as an addict, as an alcoholic, never even crossed my mind. Right. And it was in that first group in rehab that they asked me, they sat me down and they said, well, actually not, they didn't sit me down. They stood me in the middle of the circle and said, why are you here? And I would give them, you know, normal human experiences, answers like, um, well, I went to jail and my lawyer thinks that I should really go to rehab because we're facing a lot. Nope, that's not why you're here. Um, well, I, my, you know, I'm, a meth, I'm addicted to meth and my parents um, really want me to get, that's not why you're here. Um, I really want to, you know, I really want to get my life straight. Like you're just trying to give people the fucking answer they want because you're in the middle of a circle and you're weird and you're embarrassed and you, I'm yeah. still coming off of the meth from the night before. Like it was not a good experience. And eventually they give you the answer after what felt like 45 minutes, but probably was five. They gave me the answer. And the answer is you're here because you're an addict. Mm. And it was that simple. You're here because you're an addict. And every other answer is wrong. Yeah, it was. Oh, yeah. I tried all of them. Yeah. And and they're like, you're an addict. That's why you're here. Everybody's here because they're addicts. And they give you the language. And you know what? I fucking took it. Yep. I took it. First of all, because it got me out of the circle. Of course. Secondly, because that made me accepted in that accepted. group. Accepted, yeah. And so There's I, no option. None. None. Um, and so I, I ran with it. And it was hard. Um, I definitely still wasn't clean the first few weeks uh, i brought tylenol pm i think i snuck t- how did i sneak tylenol pm in with me i got tylenol pm in them somehow and because i was having a really hard time sleeping because surprise i'm a pretty anxious fucking kid already anxious before but now facing 20 years in prison in a rehab with people i don't know uh, my parents knowing everything that happened really really a lot of anxiety and so i would take tylenol pm to fall asleep which was against the rules you're not supposed to take anything to do anything um so i was lying about that and I was just doing my best to just keep my head on straight. And then you got through that experience. You got through rehab. Well, and I then didn't. you had to go to jail, right? Yeah, I didn't get through rehab though. I I um I got to go to work a month into being clean in that rehab. Um they let me go to work and work at the time was a studio, so it was like a joke that they let me go back, but we had pull because we were a private paying client. So they let me go back to work and I sat in the studio. Again, things I wouldn't have known to identify back then. But what I did in my studio was use drugs, kind of play around with music, and watch porn. That's all I did. So I would, So you did that. So I when did you that yeah. during the day. And I found some drugs that were still hidden in the place. I had my storage space that had a ton of other drugs in it did that they nobody test knew you? about. They tested you, right? It's a rehab. I mean, they didn't test me unless they felt like they needed to test me. So they didn't test me for at least another month or so. And then they let me out on New Year's Eve, um, which is the absolute, it's a test. And here's again my point. They measured how I was doing by abstinence. And then they sent me to like the lion's den to Mm -hmm. test to see, will he be abstinent? Now, I showed up high as a motherfucker. I was up that entire night on meth. I was trying to drink those drinks later, you know, we've talked to your brother about this stuff. We tried to drink those drinks to clean out your system. Mm-hmm. Didn't do anything. The moment I walked into the rehab, uh, they tested me. And uh, I was, I'd been smoking meth for a straight day. I probably looked like a nightmare. Um, mm. And they test me, but back then tests wouldn't come back until like a week later. So they test and I keep going on. And I'd been lying to everybody there for at least a month I was already using. And, um, and again, my point, right, getting us back to where we started the abstinence didn't get me anywhere because I wasn't actually dealing with anything that was going on. So 
I became in the in the story already. I've been absent like eight or nine times. Yeah, it just never stuck because nobody ever dealt with the underlying stuff. So they test me. It comes back, and then one day I come in from a group or something like that, and they're like, "Hey, you have to pack up your stuff. You tested positive for meth." And I tried to lie to them and tell them all the stuff I wasn't using. I taken uh, Sudafed because I had a cold because Sudafed has ephedrine in it. And I was trying to lie in everywhere that I could. They didn't wouldn't hear it. I had to leave, pack all my stuff, go in the car. I'm now homeless other than this car. And um, that was a big moment for me because I'd been in that rehab for three months at that point in time. Everybody thought I was sober for three months, but I got like three weeks and then um, then started using again and I was lying. And my dad called because he called every day back then. We talked all the time. And I was in my studio, probably using again. And I had this whole setup to lie to him about what happened. And the setup was, hey, you know, it was really far from my work. And so I was driving a lot. And that's a lot of miles on the car and costing a lot in gas. I need to find something closer to work. I don't want to drive around that much. I had this whole story. And uh, he was kind of buying it like he always bought everything since I was eight. And, um, and then I stopped myself. And I remember I said, you know what? I'm lying. I, I got kicked out. Hmm. And, um, sorry. And I, uh, I told him the truth. I said, I got kicked out. They caught me using, um, they tested me and, um, and they found meth and I'm crying a, cause I, I don't get to talk to my dad anymore. Yeah. <sighs> but also because that call was really, Pivotal. really a beginning of change. Yeah. It's like the first moment that you I told owned. The truth. Yeah, that you told the truth. I told the truth, and um, you owned it, and it was not good. <laughs> like <laughs> I told the truth, I felt relief, but my dad started just screaming. When my my dad never yelled, and I started yelling at him. He's like, "What the fuck is wrong with you? What do you expect to do? You know, you just threw away three months. You're facing decades in prison." You're not going to go to prison for the rest of your life. And you just kept going on and on and on. And um, he ended it with a question and he said, oh, what do you want us to do? Oh. That was the question he asked. What do you expect me to do? And I said, you can't do anything. It's like the worst thing to say to a parent too. But I, there's nothing left to do. I just said to him, I have to figure this out. I need to figure this out. This isn't you. You can't do anything about it. Yeah. And um, he wasn't happy about it. And it wasn't the answer he wanted. Um, but it was also true. And again, why abstinence is not the barometer by which you measure success is that's when my recovery started. Ownership. Um, yeah. I used for another two weeks every day. I was sleeping sometimes on the couch and sometimes in bed with this other girl who like had used to buy, buy drugs for me and we would hook up sometimes. And so she like, gave me a place to crash, but I used every day, everything I had, I got more shit. Like I could not deal with what was going on, but I knew something I had to change. And now I, and owned that was it, a shift and I owned it. And, um, throughout that I was going to this weird outpatient thing at Kaiser Permanente that <laughs> would, did nothing for my recovery, but I was doing something. I was going to something almost every day. And I kept looking for a place. My counselor at that place was helping me find uh, sober livings. And uh, it took like two to three weeks to find a place. 
and I drove to this place. And that, by that, I mean it took me two to three weeks to get enough shit done to find a place. There were probably places earlier. But I found this place that um, he gave me the number of and I made a call and I made an appointment to come in. And it was a night appointment, like 8 or 9 p.m. And I showed up with sunglasses on because I'd been using the entire time and I didn't want to look them in the eyes. Um, but now I knew I needed help. And so I sat there. We made an agreement that I was going to come in. It was way cheaper, which made me feel better anyway because I didn't like having my parents spend like 10 grand a month for a program that I was, that wasn't fucking doing anything for me anyway. This was like $1,500 a month at the time, which made me feel a lot better. Like, And I was taking control and that was really important. Um, so we talked, we made an agreement that I would come in the next day and we came in and of course they were abstinence driven. Of course they were AA based. They were everything that was traditional in treatment because yeah. it's the only thing that there is. Um, but now I wanted it. Yeah. Now I knew I'm like, if I don't own this shit, I'm going away for the rest of my life. Right. And, um, and so I did what they told me to do. And the, what they told me to do wasn't even that important. Yes, there was humility. Yes, there was owning up to my shit, but they didn't know 80% of the stuff. I didn't, it took years to get through all the layers of bullshit that I had had, but now I was committed. Now I wanted it. And and that's a transformation that needs to happen. You know, sometimes people in traditional groups call it like a, a spiritual awakening, a, a white light moment, call it whatever you want. Um, there was a moment of, I have to own this. Yeah. Um, and so I did. I did what I needed to. I still fucked up in that place. I just didn't use. Right. I fucked up in other ways. And when I fucked up and they would be like, yo, you got to step up or you're out of here. I knew what that meant now. And what that meant was I'm going to throw my life away. And so I just kept trying to do my best and screwing it up and doing my best and screwing it up and doing my best. Um, and the entire time we were in court. So every month my dad would come out or my mom would come out with my sister and we'd go to court and um, they would see the progress and we would tell them where, where I'm at, and what's going on. And about eight, nine months after I came into that place was like the last day. And I was still, the minimum we could get them down to was three years. And my lawyer said, look, you've done great. You've, uh, you, you cleaned up. You like did all the stuff you needed to do. I think I can get you a better deal. And it was a scary fucking moment because I had two options. I could, um, I could essentially take the deal that the DA was giving me, which was three years to one charge back to that motorcycle when they caught me with um half or a quarter pound, I don't remember the exact number, but more than one ounce of cocaine, there was a mandatory minimum sentence. And that was three years that you're supposed to serve. Um, and they said, look, we'll take everything else away. Uh, you know, plead guilty to that charge. You'll go to prison for three years. Good time. You'll be out in a year and a half, but it was prison and it was a longer sentence. And my, my uh, lawyer said, I think I can get you a better deal. But then you have to do this thing. It's called an open plea. And that meant I had to go in court and plead guilty to everything. Mm. Um, and he could have said 10. Like, you know, you don't know what happens. Is that what you did? Uh, and I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, st I stood there. My, my mom couldn't come because she couldn't watch it. But um, my dad showed up. Yeah, my dad was there all the time. Yeah. And, uh, and I did it, you know, I stood up and I, they would just read every offense and I would just have to plead guilty. And then that means you're giving up your rights. It's like, you know, there are like nine of them one after the other. And, um, and then the judge goes away and, uh, he tries to make his decision and he came back 
and he gave me 364 days yeah. just under a year because if you go for a year or more you go to prison it's an entirely different system um wow so he gave me like a third of the sentence that i was going to get otherwise but he said he said straight up he said look i'm giving you this just under a year but i'm putting seven years it's called a suspended sentence i'm giving you another seven years it's waiting if you don't fuck up, you get through probation, everything else is good. He didn't say fuck up, obviously. But um, yeah. you'll do this time and you're done. So, But if I catch you selling drugs again, whatever you get next time, you got another seven years on top of it. Mm. And, um, hmm. and, and that was like, that was this moment of just recognition that whatever I did up to that point paid off. Like my mom, my mom to this day is mad at the judge for giving me a year, but he, that was a blessing. Oh yeah, you know we got gratitude coming up next uh, next month on Ignited, and like I'm grateful every day for El Judge Fox in Beverly Hills who gave me that chance because yeah. I did my my year. I did. So four. he's the one that actually you, what, you saw him. I saw again. him, but he's the one that gave you the original sentence. Yeah. Oh wow! So he gave you that sentence, and then when I on the flip side, I met you. So you met me. Wow, you had a long relationship years, with him. Three years later. I mean, he knew me since like 2001, 1999. Like he knew me for like six or seven we years. We should have him over for dinner. I'd love to. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, he gave me that year. I did the year in jail. I got out and then I had to redo my life. And you and I have talked a lot about where that ended up. But to bring it back to the story, you were there on like our, I don't know, fourth or fifth date early on in our relationship. We met We met um, in UCLA, <laughs> ironically. At UCLA. We met at UCLA in a neuroscience class and started studying together. Yeah. And in the neuroscience class, we talk a lot about drugs. We That's talk why a lot you about took drugs. it. That's the room where um, once in a midterm, I'd done so much meth that in the middle of the test, I thought I saw all the lights get dim. Like I was sitting taking the final and it seemed to me like somebody turned the lights down and I looked around and nobody else was looking around. Because like, you, you went to undergrad at UCLA and then also after jail. Went back. Went to graduate school. Well, I went got, to Cal State Long Beach and I ended up at UCLA, yeah. Yeah. But that same room that you and I met in, I had like essentially a hallucination under meth. Where I, and then I went back into the bathroom. Like I was smoking in the bathrooms. I was smoking meth in the bathrooms and under wow. staircases in that same room. Talk um, about exposure therapy. <laughs> totally. Uh, so yeah, so then a few weeks after we met, uh, we went. you went to court with me. Yep. I spent the night at Dee's house and this was a couple weeks after meeting, not far actually, just a couple weeks after and we went to court. It's a romantic date. I was still wearing the clothes from the day before and yeah, I was sobbing. I was sobbing the entire, because it was a basically to see if he had to continue on with prob probation yeah. to check in. It was actually a check-in, right? And they ended up releasing you? It was a check-in, but we were asking it was over three years of probation after the original jail term. And so we were essentially asking for uh, for probation to be terminated. Yeah. So we went in and I'm, I won't like get into the whole story because we don't have the time for it. But it was the most moving experience to witness this man. I mean, the judge had your back. He watched yeah. you over years transform into the person before him. And he was basically yelling at the person who was that from the DA side. The DA, yeah. They didn't want to let me off the hook yet. Yeah. And he was like, this man is a dream. Like the fact that he is just got accepted to one of the top universities in the world for, for a PhD program and this program. And the fact that he 
has transformed his life in this way before us. Like, this is what we all want. This is like, please go off into society and and be you and shine bright. And I was just sobbing and it was so beautiful to witness. And that began the beginning of your, I mean. Well, it was already, that was already in the middle, but you bring up a really important point that I think helps me tie together why I do what I do now. I'm here because of the support I had from the people around me. I'm here because that judge gave me a chance. Yeah. I'm here because even though I fucked up over and over and over, people held a tiny bit of space for me to do well. And I feel like almost that is my pay it forward thing now, right? right? Like, I don't care how far down you've been. I say this to people all the time. There's no bottom you've been to. There's no terrible thing you've experienced where I don't believe you can come back up because I've seen it. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of hundreds and thousands of other people. Um, And that judge being willing to accept that I was willing in that moment to change my life gave me an opportunity. I don't know what would have happened if I got three, five, seven, eight, 12 years, 18 years in prison. Who you would be now? Probably not the same person I am right now, right? And so in the end, it comes back to us understanding that we're all humans. Like we just want to be okay. Yeah. And obviously, for whatever reason, I didn't feel okay at the time. And and it was starting to get better. So, don't squash somebody because they're not perfect. Right. Instead, help them rise, right? And um, and after your PhD, and you weren't using it all. You When I met you, you weren't even... You would, you would drink like... I didn't alcohol, drink... Alcohol I, was never even your thing, but you still were like very just... I was 100% sober for three years. Yeah. Um, and then I took the AA experiment and I started drinking again. And... The experiment's been running since 2005, so I, I'm going to call that a success. Yep. Um, it's been 15 years, 14 years of social and, drinking. In light of radical transparency, when he dr- took wanted to take that first drink, he called his support system and he said- Oh, we talked for six months. Just to let you know, I'm going to try a glass of champagne at my girlfriend's X, Y, and Z party. I want you all to know- that I'm doing this. Yeah. It was funny. a group support effort. His loved ones, his family members, my his, sponsor. his sponsor. I even talked to my sponsor about it. Radical I mean, transparency. It's funny, radical transparency. Yeah. It's like at the beginning of this whole journey is radical transparency. Yeah. And um and they all knew my mom wasn't worried because she thought I'd never had a problem with alcohol. My dad was freaked out, of course. Of course. But I talked and I was like, look, you guys are in on everything. I'm mm-hmm. not lying about anything. I don't want to lie about this. Let me try this out. If it doesn't work out, I'll go back to sobriety. Um and, and yeah, so I was sober completely for three years. By the time you met me, I was socially drinking. Again, yeah. But not using anything else. Yeah. And um, what are other things in terms of recovery like that helped you? You were like, you were in the gym a lot You when I, I met you. I worked out a lot. Yeah. I mean, so I broke my leg and I couldn't walk for, I was in a wheelchair for three months, uh, crutches for another like eight. I couldn't walk. So by the time I was in Cal State Long Beach, I was really going to, so after jail, Really, I was going to physical therapy and then eventually the gym a lot. And exercise really, really helped me. Um, what else? I mean, look, friends and, and support really was hugely important. Yeah. But then also for me, having a goal. So I tell the story a lot. I couldn't get hired out of jail because nobody gets hired out of jail, which is a nightmare for people who had convictions. Um, my family, thankfully for me, was willing to support me in going back to school. So my parents had to pay my rent and school for me to be able to go back, which was thousands of dollars a semester. And they were willing to do it again because they were willing to support me. 
within about a semester and a half, two semesters, I, um, I got a job there. So I was able to start paying for some of my own stuff, uh, which felt really, really good. But I had a purpose. Yeah. And so purpose, support, uh, hope from other people first, but then it ingrained in me. Those were all huge factors for me. Um, and then for me, like I always say, like education, understanding more. I studied addiction. I went in and studied it really, really heavily. And and then what happened, the reason I was I even started drinking it was I was like, I don't think that explanation they give me in AA is the right explanation, at least not for me. Yeah. And it gave me the balls to kind of say, I think there's something else out there. Yeah, and like defining your own version of what that means yep. instead of what someone else predetermines. Yeah, and so I took my journey. I went back to school, went to got, got my PhD, started seeing people, um, saw people in a rehab, opened up my own rehab, and now we do Ignited. But the point is always to just be that back, to be that support, to be that shining beacon of hope, light, inspiration for people who are currently struggling and just are not finding the answer as like 90% of people are not finding the answer in the traditional ways. Because yeah, I got sober through traditional means because nobody else gave me any other chance. I've The bottom line is I just wanted it and owned it when the time came. Mm-hmm. And, and dealt with what the system at hand. And if you're ready to own it, you should be able to find something that speaks to you, not just something that somebody is willing to give you. Yeah. And um, and that's that's my thing, you know, because otherwise it would be funny, right? I would just make everybody go, well, first you go to three years of, re- of AA and then you do this other thing. My story doesn't need to be your story. That's no. not the point. No. The point is that recovery looks different on everybody and you should be okay with that. Even if your other people's recovery doesn't look like yours, don't worry about it. Yeah. Are they doing well? Is their life moving forward in a, in a meaningful, constructive way? If it is, kudos to them. Yeah. Hallelujah and amen. Let's just keep this going. Thank you for tuning in to the Ignited Heroes Recovery Podcast. I really hope you found the information here useful and that we'll see you back here next week. And look, I want to make sure that this podcast is the most useful it can be for you. So please let me know by emailing info at ignited.com if there are any specific topics or questions you'd like to have addressed. As usual, if you like this episode, I would love for you to leave us a five-star review and rating. Thanks and see you next week.